I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. So uh, I want to ask you, Nate, yes. um, what do you think of when you think of like the tropiest of fall tropes? Oh, I mean, obviously pumpkin spice lattes, uh-huh. uh, decorative gourd season. I think of uh. leaf looking, I'm not going to say the P word. The P word is banned on this show now. Um, I guess I guess we should explain for those who don't get the reference. Uh, what was the episode we did where we looked for alternatives to? Uh... It was our last outside inbox roundup where we talked about. I'll say it. I'll say it now, and then we'll never say it again. Leaf peeping. It's a bad word. No one peeps yeah. at leaves. Well, we actually asked for alternatives to calling it leaf peeping, uh-huh. and it was voted on by our listeners. Do you want to know what new term won? Yes. Tree tourists. Okay, I like tree tourists a lot more. I don't know. It's kind of a little boring, don't you think? It is, but that's exactly what they are. Yeah. You're touring around looking at trees. Well, let me mention some runner-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was color chasers, <laughs> leafers, and my personal favorite, Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Golden Leaf, and Tree Perceivers. <laughs> hey, do you want to go Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Golden Leaf, and Tree Perceiving this weekend? I'm Nate. I'm Felix. And this is Outside In. And today we dive into our outside inbox to answer your questions about the natural world. And this time, the theme is fall. So, Nate, 
Just to clarify, we're not just talking about the season of fall, right? No, we're trying to be clever. We're talking about everything surrounding (laughs) the word fall. Right. Like the literal act of falling, like this first question. Hi, I'm Sydney from Natural Bridge, Virginia, and I was just wondering if you could answer the question, why does everyone seem to have that same dream where you're falling off of a cliff, but then you wake up just before you hit the ground? Thanks. Here I am with producer Justine Paradise answering that question. So to answer this one, I talked with Dr. Abhinav Singh. He is the medical director of the Indiana Sleep Center, and I asked him what he thought. It's a fascinating question. Dreams have always fascinated us from time immemorial because dreams form that fabulous shoreline between the mind and the brain where physiology meets psychology. Oh man, he's like a he's like a secret poet. That was beautiful. So Abhinav makes a couple points here. There is a lot we don't know about dreams and sleep, but let's start with the physiology. What is happening in our brains when we dream? In the 1950s, scientists discovered REM sleep. That's rapid eye movement sleep. The brain is firing on all cylinders. It's not slow. It's very fast. The eyes are fast. Consumption of energy is high. The heart rate's erratic. And it is during this state where we dream very vividly is what the understanding is. We do also dream in other phases of sleep, but this is when the dreams that we remember take place. Okay, so this is when we're actually having that falling off a cliff dream. Yeah, and this is about a quarter of your sleep. And your brain is super active during REM sleep. Memories are being archived and put away. Certain kinds of memories are processed in dream sleep versus certain kinds of memories are processed in non-dream deep sleep. Another thing that's happening is emotional regulation. Processing emotions so that when you're awake, you're better able to let things go and not get overly bothered by, say, getting cut off in traffic. Right. Like this is your like let things roll off your back ability. Yeah. And whether or not dreams are part of these functions or just happening at the same time, we don't know. There are also stories of people working on really difficult problems and having the solution come to them in a dream. Like this happened to a chemist famously. The famous, you know, benzene ring solution that had fascinated organic chemists forever Uh, was solved in a state of dream. Really? That's so cool. I know. But let's also now turn to another lens, the psychological. Just within Western psychology, there are many different theories about what dreams mean. Over a century ago, Sigmund Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams, which is still read today. It says that dreams are full of symbols containing meaning and that dreams reveal our unconscious desires. Hmm. Another more recent theory says dreams are an opportunity for threat simulation. So like a rehearsal for real life, maybe dangerous events. Like potentially falling off a cliff. All of us have had these dreams, all of us. And it almost triggers full wakefulness. Others say dreams are meaningless. As a physician, Abhinav was a bit reluctant to venture into the psychological realm, Mm -hmm. but he gave it a go. He said that that trip and fall dream contains an abrupt emotion, like pain or fear. And maybe repetitive dreams function as fear management. Maybe it was evolution's way of trying to resolve these difficult situations so that it doesn't bother you and you can move on with your day. Maybe it was the natural way to protect you from mental health ailments such as depression. I don't know. I'm speculating here. The last thing he told me was, the important thing is that you are dreaming. And it's a good thing if you do remember some dreams. 
If you're excessively dreaming and it's bothering you, or you're not dreaming at all, you should say something to your doctor. Maybe once a week is normal to recall your dreams. And that's the take-home message. Dream on, you know, dreaming is healthy. Dream on. Do you have any recurring dreams, Felix? Uh, I actually have this recurring thing where I fly. Oh, cool. But it's not like a bird. I'm like working my legs as if I'm running. Yeah. And I'm able to like kind of soar into the air. And Oh, man, that's a great dream. That sounds so fun. What, what about you, Nate? Yeah, I keep having the same dream. I've had it like since I was a kid of there being a tornado and I have to like save all my friends and family members, but I can't find them. And so it's just like, it, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a stress dream. It's definitely a stress dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, since you mentioned tornadoes. Yes. Um, we could go into this next question we have about tornadoes, which I did not know this before, Nate, but tornadoes have their peak season around May and June. But apparently they get a second wind in the fall around October. Here's producer Jessica Hunt. Today, Nate, we have a team question from some fans in Vermont. Hi, Outside In. This is Jeannie and several of my friends from Burlington, Vermont. And our question is, does anybody else want to pitch in? Where else in the world besides the Midwestern United States do tornadoes occur? And are they featured in any mythologies or uh traditions of indigenous peoples from other areas. Or from this area. We haven't heard of any mythologies, including tornadoes, and we're curious if they're represented. Thanks. We hope you answer our questions. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love I love that it was a group question. I know. It sounds like they were sitting around talking about it, and they're like, we've got to ask outside in. So obviously we get a lot of tornadoes here in the United States. Where, like, where outside of the U.S. do you see a lot of tornadoes? Tornadoes have happened on every continent except Antarctica. And if you superimpose a map of tornadoes over a map of the world, you'll find that most tornadoes happen in agricultural areas like Ukraine, for one, which, as we've learned lately, grows a lot of the world's wheat. So the plains of eastern and southern Europe, up by the Yellow River in the northern part of China, as well as India and Pakistan. What all those places have in common is access to warm, moist air from nearby oceans and seas, which helps make the rain that irrigates crops, but also combines with cooler air to occasionally form supercells, the big storms that sometimes produce tornadoes. Now, on to the mythology part of the question. Have you ever heard of Baba Yaga? No, but it sounds intriguing. I learned about Baba Yaga from Nani Pibas, who researches global tornado myths at Oklahoma State University. So how do you recognize tornado belief and the mythic elements of a tornado? Well, in Slavic tradition, you know, Russia, Ukraine, you have Baba Yaga, the witch with the long nose and the mortar and pestle flying through the forest, destroying the forest, and even leaving concentric circles on the ground. You have the same sort of character in Australia and Finland. In China, the tornado literally is translated as the wind whirled by the dragon. And then sub-Saharan Africa, where the Bantu people and the Bantu language are associated with the spread of farming across Africa, we see more myths about tornadoes. One of them I always loved was the one-legged lake god. And these were the giant's legs coming down to earth. And Nani says you'll find similar imagery in indigenous cultures here in the U.S. 
I spoke with a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, Sequoia Quinton, a photographer and tornado chaser. And he told me some tribal elders would refer to tornadoes as dead man walking. And he sent us some pictures I want to show you. Okay. All right. I'm pulling them up now. And sure enough, so so they are uh, uh, actually two tornadoes, and they really do look like um, a person kind of running across the landscape. That's so neat. Nani says there's one thing that all these myths have in common. Tornadoes are always treated with respect and reverence by indigenous peoples around the world. And while the myths may not be written down, they may actually be present as symbols. We just don't realize that's what we're looking at. Look at a witch. Anything with long, crookedy things. Snake iconography. Flying, rolling heads, horned serpents, the snakes rising up out of the water, long tails dipping down from the clouds, spirals, 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 everywhere. That was producer Jessica Hunt on tornadoes and how they figure into indigenous myths and other myths from around the world. Now, Felix, have you had any experience with tornadoes? Um, Personally, no, but uh, I wasn't there at the time, but the town I went to high school in Mm -hmm. experienced a tornado that actually took the roof off the high school. Oh, wow. Ooh, Um, yeah. And so... This was after I graduated. I revisited there sometime later, and it was a very odd experience because nothing was as I remembered it. They redid yeah. the track. They redid, like, the whole building. I was like, I went here for high school, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Anyways, we do have more questions to answer. But first, if you are liking the show, consider supporting us by going to outsideinradio.org and making a donation. We'll be right back after this break. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. I'm Felix Boone. And today, we're answering your questions about fall. 
fall the season, fall the literal act of falling. And this next question that Taylor Quimby answered is about fallout shelters. This week's question comes to us from a listener named Jordan White. Okay, quick question. How deep does a fallout shelter need to be in order to remain effective? I mean, a nuclear explosion is huge, and I would imagine that the particles would seep into the earth. So how deep can those radioactive particles go? So, Nate, uh, question. What do you picture when you picture a fallout shelter? Like, what comes to mind? I picture, remember that movie, um, 10 Cloverfield Lane? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That's a good movie. Yeah. That whole movie is set in a fallout shelter. It's just an underground bunker. It's dark. There's no windows. That's what I that's what I imagined. I had the same image, but mm-hmm. then I reached out to a guy named David Montaigne. He's an architectural historian and he wrote a book called Fallout Shelter: Designing for Civil Defense in the Cold War. And he told me that you, me, and Jordan are all making a very common mistake. To answer that question, you kind of have to distinguish between the bomb shelter and the fallout shelter. Oh, so what we were imagining was a bomb shelter. Exactly. And bomb shelters are trying to protect you from the actual explosion, uh, right? So they're Uh, understandably, underground. Mm -hmm. A fallout shelter is trying to protect you from the radioactive particles that can literally fall out of the sky after drifting thousands of miles away from a nuclear explosion. Mm. And those do not have to be underground at all. In theory, a fallout shelter could be in a glass skyscraper. Okay, that's that's definitely surprising. I always assumed underground. That's a fallout shelter. Underground. Yeah, and, and the way that they determine what spaces are safe is all about math. It's an equation of mass and distance. So you want enough mass between you and the radiation, and you want enough distance or some combination of the two. So think of it this way. The less dense your barrier or wall is, the thicker it has to be or sort of the more distance you need between wherever it is that you're staying, and that initial source of radiation. Mm -hmm. So if the floor plate is big enough that you can get away from the windows and have a place to stay, uh, and with a glass skyscraper, there's not a lot of horizontal ledges or things like that for fallout to to settle on. So if you're in the middle floors of the skyscraper, in theory, you're you're fine from fallout. I mean, if the bomb went off like in a different city, I mean, you're screwed if it goes off in New York City and you're in the skyscraper, right? Like it's Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, that's where you want so, a bomb shelter. Yeah, so in the 1960s, the federal government designated fallout shelters all across the country, partially because they realized they couldn't do bomb shelters for everybody. It would be way too expensive. You know, there were 19,000 fallout shelters in New York City alone. Wow. And, you know, they're in commonplace buildings, schools, hospitals. I toured one that was, was in a basement, but it was a basement of a early 20th century bank building. So, you know, like a neoclassical bank. I did find a really cool website that um, that basically tracks all the ones that were in Boston. And some of them still have, you know, uh, barrels of water and like high energy biscuits hidden away. I wouldn't trust I wouldn't trust those high energy biscuits. David actually told me that he did eat one, but they're all super rancid because they're 50 years old. Yeah. No, that was a bad idea, David. Don't eat old biscuits. Um, but, 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 but another thing to think about Uh, when we're talking fallout, is the type of radiation we're trying to protect ourselves against. So in one year, the average person in the U.S. is exposed to 6.2 millisieverts. So sievert is a unit of dose. Half of this dose that you get just by existing every year is from the environment. These are natural. So this is Shaheen Duji. She's a radiological engineer and professor at Georgia Tech. 
And she reminded me that radiation is everywhere. You know, it comes from the sun. It comes from the Earth's crust. Nate, when you eat a fruit salad, you are uh-huh. literally eating radioactive isotopes. Bananas contain radioactive potassium. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm, I'm getting radiated every time I, I eat my fruit salad. Just a teeny tiny, very safe amount. It's not going <laughs> to hurt you. Okay, that's good to know. But for more dangerous types of radiation, the type of shielding that you would want uh, might really differ. So for uh, you've heard of radon gas, right? You guys have that? Oh, yeah, we've had it. We had it in our house growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So radon is a radioactive gas. That's why it is dangerous. But it actually only harms you when you breathe it in because... You could literally stop it by holding out your hand. An alpha particle cannot travel very far, uh, and it won't even penetrate past the dead layer of your skin. Huh. On the other hand, another radioactive material, cesium-137, which is just one of the many products that come out of a nuclear explosion, that produces gamma rays that can penetrate metal. So to reduce the intensity of cesium-137 by 50%, you'd need about 0.7 centimeters of lead. Equivalently, right, you can also use about a centimeter and a half of steel or just under five centimeters of concrete. Okay, so in summary, fallout shelter doesn't have to be underground at all, and determining safety when it comes to radiation depends on the type of radiation, the dose, and uh, the duration. Exactly. You nailed it. Okay, but the question is, how many bananas would you have to eat to die of radiation sickness? You'd have to eat 10 million bananas all at once. I could do that. That's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you must like bananas. I do. I really love bananas. Alternatively, Nate, you could eat 274 bananas every day for seven years, uh, and you'd start to suffer from, like, chronic radiation sickness. (laughs) I think I'd suffer from more than just chronic radiation. (laughs) Irritable bowel syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Irritable bowel syndrome, for sure. So far, we've been interpreting the fall theme of our show pretty loosely. You know, like falling asleep, fallout shelters... But here is a question that is actually related to early fall, or at least the end of the summer. It has to do with berries and when they ripen. Hey, Outside In, it's uh, Owen here from Barry on the very south coast of Wales. Now, anecdotally, the blackberry season here in Wales seems to be getting earlier and earlier. Now, is New Hampshire experiencing climate change-related fruit ripening? And can anything really be done about it i feel like owen should host his own radio show to be honest he has such a wonderful voice i know right uh but i I digress uh what did you find out so this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone it is true fruit is ripening earlier Mm -hmm. and one researcher looking into this is richard premack about 20 years ago richard started looking at the effects of climate change in new england and just by chance we wound up hearing that henry david thoreau the author of the book walden it made very detailed observations of flowering times and tree leafing out times. So Richard and his team compared Thoreau's observations from almost 170 years ago to what we see today. And we found dramatic examples of how trees are leafing out about two weeks earlier now than they were in the past, that wildflowers are uh, flowering about 10 days earlier now than in the past. That's a lot. Felix, what are the consequences of all this? Yeah, Richard says even with an earlier spring, you can still get a late frost that can kill the flowers of cherries, peaches, pears, and apples. That's not good. No, and this isn't just happening here in New England. It's happening pretty much everywhere, including in communities that depend on fruit for their subsistence. 
For example, on the west coast of Alaska, where both people and birds eat berries. And it supports this really huge migratory bird population and um, geese and ducks. And the indigenous communities also hunt them for subsistence. Right. So, so berries are super important to the ecology and people there. Right. This is Nicole Herman Mercer, by the way, a social scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. Nicole worked with indigenous communities in the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta to gather survey data on what they were noticing about berry habitat. I imagine they probably found earlier ripening times too. Yeah, and this matters because there's a short window of time for berry gathering. And if this window now overlaps with, say, salmon season, then you've got a problem. The berries and the salmon are hitting on the same weekend. What are you going to choose? You know what I mean? This is Katie Spellman, a professor at University of Alaska Fairbanks. And Katie says while some folks here live fully subsistence lifestyles, others have cash economy jobs so they only have time to pick berries on weekends. And there's usually only four weekends that berries are ripe. If you miss them, you can buy berries at the store, but that's expensive because it's a remote place where groceries have to be flown in. So like our listener Owen was, was asking in the first place, what can be done about all this? So one idea is to maintain berry patches on the north and the south side of hills. That way, if you get a hotter season, maybe the south side won't get much fruit, but the north side will. And vice versa if you get a colder season. Mm -hmm. And then another idea is to have a diversity of fruits by growing a food forest. There's winners and losers at any one location when the climate is warming. And so like plant a whole bunch of different types of foods, right, in a community food forest so that you can um, be ready for those changes. And the other thing that Nicole mentioned was to help the berry patches with snow. So with climate change, there's less snow in the winters, and snow is an insulator that protects berry plants from the cold. So you can gather the snow around the berry plants to make sure they don't freeze and die in cold spells. Mm. Anything else? Not really. I mean, except the obvious thing, of course, which I think Richard Premack put best. To reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases, to use less fossil fuel. That seems to be an answer to almost every problem these days. Well, that is it for today's episode. Thanks to everybody who has written or called in with their questions. And if you've got a question about the natural world or just thoughts that you'd like to share about the show, you can call our hotline. It is 1-844-GO-OTTER. You can also send a voice memo to our email, and that's outsidein at nhpr.org. Or you can write to us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is Outside In Radio. This episode of Outside In was produced and mixed by Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, and Jessica Hunt. It was edited by Taylor Quimby and Justine Paradise. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode was by Ja Ree, Fia Tyler, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.